Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets. Though humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but they were, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They, were, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Thank you. Have you ever been surfing the web only to be interrupted by life-changing news? I can't be the only one who has found out they've won a million dollars. Strangely enough, that money hasn't shown up in my bank account yet. Now, of course, most of us aren't taken in by a claim like that. We know that some hacker wants us to click on the button so they can steal our info and get our money. They're not giving us any money. Now, on the other hand, if the people from Publishers Clearinghouse showed up at your door with a million-dollar check, you might be more apt to believe it because they have credibility that a pop-up ad does not. But the fact that the hackers keep putting up these ads means there must be people who still click. People who want to believe they've just won a million dollars, even if they should know better. In Peter's letter, in 2 Peter, he wants to warn Christians that they will face this kind of deception. Now, he's not warning about pop-up ads. He's warning about people who rise up claiming they are speaking for God when all they are speaking is lies. Now, these people are enticing because they will tell us exactly what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. In order to pick out the lie, you need to have a reliable authority when it comes to the truth. And what Peter is saying here is that this authority is the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible. In verses 20 and 21, Peter says that the Scriptures are set apart because they are not human in origin. They're not just something that a human cooked up. Rather, they are divine in origin. Now, when we hear that, we may be a little bit confused because, of course, we understand that the Bible was not dropped out of heaven to us. It's not like God did a flyover and dropped out a crate of Bibles for us. No. The, Bible's, the Bible was written by human authors, human writers, real people like you and me, people who are not perfect, but people that were called by God to speak his word. 
And these writers were set apart because they were divinely inspired in what they wrote. And Peter says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks similarly in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. And this is a great verse to remember. You think about John 3, 16 being that critical passage about faith in Christ. You think about 2 Timothy 3, 16 for being a critical passage and telling us the authority of Scripture. Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in saying that Scripture is God-breathed, what Paul is saying is that while, of course, there are human writers that are employed, there are human authors that are employed, ultimately, the origin is from God. These writings are divinely inspired. So going back to the Old Testament, we see testimony of this. You look at David, in his final parting words, 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through, 20, 1 through 2, he says, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, his word was on my tongue. And we hear a similar sort of testimony from the prophet Jeremiah. He records in Jeremiah 1, verses 9-10, through 10, Then the Lord reached out His hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So this is something that's been going on for a while. This goes back thousands of years. Of course, many of us wonder, well, what is that like? What is it? actually look like for a person to be divinely inspired? Does that mean that God is just speaking his word directly in their ear? Okay, now I want you to write and and then put a comma. <laughs> is, is that how it works? Or is it, or can it look different than that? Because we do understand that there are times in which God does dictate his word pretty directly. You think about Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. It doesn't get more direct than that, God writing in stone. And yet we also understand that it's not just merely those direct commands or direct prophecy, which is the word of God, but also we have history recorded in the Bible. We have poetry recorded in the Bible. We have letters written in the New Testament. So we're not just talking exclusively about instances in which God is just whispering in the author's ear. And yet, if we are saying that these writers are divinely inspired, they are being guided by God in what they ought to say and how they would say it. And how they would say it is something that is predetermined before these writers were even born. God knew all the people that were going to be writing His Holy Scriptures he knew what sort of characteristics they were going to have, qualities, skills, the circumstances they'd be writing in. And he brought this all together like an intricate web to bring forth his word. And this is what's just so profound about the scriptures is that you have this great assembly of writers and yet there's a common unity between them all pointing to Christ, 
and God's work of redemption and, and redeeming mankind from the fall. Now, the way in which God's people traditionally tested whether some, someone was divinely inspired or not is given in Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 through 22. This test is given, and it says, You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has, been, has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. So that's pretty easy. That's pretty black and white. You know, if someone says, you know, I'm prophesying that such and such is going to happen, and then that doesn't happen, then clearly that person's not speaking for God. But again, as I've mentioned, we understand that not everything's prophecy. Not everything's about foretelling the future. But that doesn't mean that we just accept things blindly. And God's people certainly did not do that. The Jewish people certainly did not do that. They tested everything in the community of faith. And so the Old Testament that we have, you open your Bible, you see the Old Testament, those are the books that the Jewish people considered to be divinely inspired, to be authoritative. Now, those were not the only writings that they had access to. Some other Bibles you'll find will include an Apocrypha that has other books in it, books like First and Second Maccabees, and uh, books of, en of Enoch. And, and they were all familiar with these, and yet they said those can be good, but they're not divinely inspired. And so they did not include it in the Old Testament. And this is why most Protestants don't include it in their Old Testament, because the Jews do not. So they had this process of testing by community. And this is the same process that was employed by the early church in figuring out, okay, what books are included in the New Testament? Now the basic tests for that were apostolicity, catholicity, and orthodoxy. Now some of those words are like, what do those mean? So apostolicity means, was this book, was this letter, was this gospel written by someone who was an associate of an apostle or an apostle themselves? Catholicity means, it's just another fancy word for universality. So was this writing something that was widely accepted by the church as something that was an authoritative writing? And then orthodoxy is, does this accord with the teaching that we're familiar with? Or is this something that's completely out of the blue? You know, is this a letter where it says Jesus came from the aliens or something? You know, if you got that, you're saying, okay, <laughs> I think this is out of bounds. This doesn't sound like anything any of the disciples said or anything we're familiar with. So those are the three tests that were employed in figuring out what books are included in the, in the New Testament canon. And it took time. It took time to, to figure that out. But the real reliability is found in that it wasn't just any one individual who decided that those books are going to be included. It was the church universal. Now, we might ask, though, why stop with the book of Revelation? Why why not be adding books you know, into the 21st century into the Bible? And this really gets us to the root of, of what 
really grounds God's word. God's word is connected with his intervention in history. And so when we look to the New Testament specifically, the New Testament is emanating from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's an extension of the teaching of Christ. And Jesus spoke to this specifically in John 14, verses 23 through 26. He says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So notice what Jesus is saying there to his disciples. He's saying, when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent, and the Holy Spirit is going to remind you everything that I taught you. And so, Jesus never wrote a gospel. He never wrote a book himself. That was a task that he left to his disciples. And he's saying that the Spirit is going to inspire you in doing that. Now once, now once you're past the generation of the apostles, there's nothing else to remember because all those people are now living after that time of first encounter with Jesus. You think about the, the Apostle Paul. Even the Apostle Paul himself is someone who met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You think about the Gospel of Mark. Mark was talking with Peter as he was putting together this Gospel. Okay, you know, what happened next? Once you get into you know, the, the second century, you know, 100 years, 200 years beyond, you're not having that first and second hand testimony there. It's getting put way out. And this is why we don't include all those Gospels you might hear about you know, on the History Channel, who the secret gospel that was found, the Gospel of Thomas. When you look at it, it was written a couple hundred years after, and it's full of all kinds of weird teachings that weren't in the original Gospels. It's not just weird books that are excluded, though, too. There's a book called The Shepherd of Hermas that was widely accepted by the church, but which they ultimately decided this isn't Scripture. It's good, but we're not including this in the Scriptures. And so we can ha- continue to have that same appreciation today for writings that are outside of the scriptures. We've got that library back there. A lot of us have favorite Christian authors and have benefited greatly from them. At the same time, too, though, we say they're not the Bible. Ultimately, what they say has to be measured against what the Bible is saying. That's what that word canon means. It doesn't mean something that <laughs> they're not talking about gunpowder and you know, firing something. The word canon, C-A-N-O-N, means a measure. The Bible is the measuring stick for the truth, and everything that is written about Christ has to stand up to that measure. Now, Peter expresses his concern in the verses that follow because there are people who are either implicitly or explicitly claiming that they have this kind of authority for their own teaching, even though their teaching is departing from the teaching of Scripture. They, these are people who are openly claiming they have a new revelation from God, or who are taking the Bible and twisting it into a pretzel to suit their own means. And so this is why Peter sa- says, you know, there's always been false prophets among God's people. 
And you have to be just as wary today because there's false teachers among you. So he's, notice how he's extending kind of what we should be on the lookout for. Because he's not just talking about people that are talking about future events. And it's not as though prophets exclusively talked about future events, but that was kind of one of their notice, notable distinctives. He's not just talking about false prophets. He's talking about false teachers. And he's saying that you can count on this. There will be false teachers among you. There will be false teachers who will introduce false teachings into the church. And he says that they will do this secretly. It's not like they come into the church and say, hey, I've got false teaching to share with you. <laughs> no, they, they take something that's true and they twist it a little bit. And that's what makes it convincing because it has an element of truth to it. He says they're going to bring in destructive heresies, which is basically something that openly contradicts the teaching of scriptures. And he gives an explicit, specific example here of them essentially denying Jesus' divinity, his sovereignty. And there's something perverse about this because they were bought by Christ. These are people who said that I put my faith in Christ, he, saved, he's, he has saved me, and yet now they're turning and undermining him. They're betraying him. And Peter identifies a certain motive here in what they're doing. He says that there's greed behind what they're doing. They're greedy. There's a sin issue going on in their hearts. And because of this sinfulness, it's going to bring disrepute to the gospel. It's going to bring shame upon the church. And I think we can think of people in the church who have done just this very sort of thing by their, by their character, by the, the things that they've done. They have brought shame upon the church because they use the gospel as a covering for their sinfulness. He says that these teachers from their greed will try to deceive us, to exploit us with fabricated stories. They're going to make up things to charm you, to help you see things their way. But he says we shouldn't listen to them because their destruction is sure. Destruction is hanging over their head. Now when we think about these kind of fabricated stories, we can think of examples of this today. There are people online, on television, often known as televangelists, but they're not just on TV anymore, who from their own greed will lure you to be greedy by saying, if you come to God, if you come to Jesus, he's going to make you wealthy. He's going to take away all your financial problems. If you just sow a little bit, if you just give a little bit, he'll take care of you. He'll make everything okay. Now, the, the thing that's so twisted about that is that it's a very pagan way of viewing God. That's how pagans viewed, the, viewed God 
their false gods. They, they would say, okay, I'm going to bring this bull, and if I bring this bull, it'll, be a good, it'll bring good luck to me. I'm basically buying off God. If I do this for God, he will do this for me. And this is what many people are teaching in the name of Christ. They're saying, if you do something for God, he will do something for you. That's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. We have done nothing. We have nothing to offer God, and yet he has offered us everything, a a pearl of great price in giving us his son free of charge. A gift that we just receive that we make no payment for. But there are teachers out there that want to sell a false gospel. That if you give something, you can, you can get some worldly riches for yourself today. But that contradicts the teaching of Jesus Christ because Jesus did not promise us riches here today. The disciples were concerned about this. As they're following Jesus around the countryside, they're realizing like this is kind of not great for our bank. <laughs> We've left a a lot behind to follow you, Jesus. And so in Matthew 19, verses 27 through 30, we hear Peter say to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are are last will be first. Notice what Jesus doesn't say there. Jesus doesn't say, okay, Peter, don't worry. Next week, I'm going to, you know, put a million dollars in your bank account. He doesn't promise him that. He says, you are going to lose a lot in this present life, in this present age. But what you lose today will will be nothing compared to what you are to gain in the age to come. But until then, your life is not going to look like the rich and famous of this world. Those who are the disciples of Christ will be those who are most often counted last, not those who are counted first. That's, that's not an easy thing to embrace. And Jesus knows that there are these false teachers that are going to try to lead his disciples astray. And so Jesus himself says in Matthew 7.15, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So notice, you know, between what Jesus has said here and what Peter has said, what characterizes these false teachers, these false prophets, is a, a basic selfishness. A wolf is not concerned with the sheep. The wolf is concerned with consuming the sheep and filling their own belly. And that's what these teachers are concerned about. They might pretend to care about you. They don't care a lick about you. They care about themselves and lining their own pockets. Paul offers a similar warning in 1 Timothy 4.1. He says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. 
That is true today. We are li- living in those later times, and my idea of later times doesn't just limit to a small frame. We've been living in later times for a while, but we can look around us and see that there are demonic teachings at work in this world. And the saddest thing is, is that those things are not just left outside of the church, they are brought into the church by some who want to be celebrated by the world. Now what Peter says is that now they look, might look like they're winning now, these teachers, but their destruction is sure, even if it must wait for the present. And he wants to give us some assurance of this. And so he gives us kind of an account of God's history in holding people account, to account in verses 4 through 9. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Peter gives us five ifs here of going over these different things that have occurred, talking about how God held angels who rebelled against him, by, and it seems by them having relations with women around the time of, of Noah. If God, God imprisoned them, God held them to account. He held the ancient world to account by bringing the flood. He held Sodom to account by bringing destruction upon them, and yet on the flip side, God was just as faithful in delivering his people. He delivered Noah and his family from the flood. He delivered Lot and his family from Sodom. What Peter is reminding us here is that God is just. And when he says that God's going to deliver us from trials, he's not saying that he's going to deliver us from hardship today, in this present moment. We will go go through hard times. The apostles went through hard times. But he's saying that when the dust settles we will be standing and the wicked will be reduced to ashes. Continuing on into verses 10 through 16, he offers some more comments on on these false teachers. He says, This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, Do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. There are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. While the eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. 
but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So again here, you know, Peter's throwing us a, a lot of, at us here, but again, what he's really just trying to communicate here is that there's a basic sinfulness and depravity that is standing behind the deceitfulness of these false teachers. And he makes reference to them heaping abuse on celestial beings. And there's some debate among the commentators as to what Peter's talking about here. It's really interesting if you go to the book of Jude, there's a very strong parallels between Jude and what Peter is, is saying here. And I encourage you to check it out for yourself. And what Jude records is basically this battling between the archangel Michael and the devil, and how even the archangel Michael did not, uh, I guess, abuse the devil, (laughs) so to speak. Um, He certainly brought judgment on the devil by fighting with him, but he did not abuse the devil. So this is all kind of strange. This is getting to territory that we just, we can't see everything that's going on. But I think the idea that he's getting at here is that these false teachers, they neither care about God, they disrespect God's sovereignty, nor are they concerned even about the demonic powers that are at play in this world. They just treat them lightly. And just as it's an insult to God to treat God lightly, to use God's name in vain, to treat him as just nothing, so it is abusive to treat the demonic powers as nothing, as though they're not something to be taken seriously. Now, we don't have to live in fear as Christians because King Jesus is on our side, but we should still take them seriously. And so, and we see this kind of ignorance in our own day where people are playing around with the dark arts or playing around with religion, you know, saying, thinking like, oh, it's no big deal if we invite a, a Muslim imam to come to a pulpit and and offer a prayer in his religion, which is not the religion of Christ. That's playing around, fast and loose, with powers that we should take seriously. These people take nothing seriously. Again, sin has captured their heart. And Peter characterized them as being adulterous in the sense that they are taking their eyes off of Christ and pursuing other things. And they're trying to lead others along the same lines. Again, very often from a place of, of greed. And this is why he, he brings up this image of Balaam, uh, this prophet who uh, was hired by the nation of Moab and Midian, Midian to bring curses upon Israel. So this, this Balaam, this prophet, was a guy that had God-given gifts of prophecy, and yet he was drawn away by a sum of money to curse God's people. And God confronted him in a very funny way. He, he, he had Balaam's donkey confront him and speak to him and condemn him for, for what he was doing. Balaam was disobedient. He wouldn't speak 
the word that God wanted to be spoken. But this donkey who couldn't speak did speak God's word. And this, this is just a, a powerful reminder to us that there can be people who show up dressed in all kinds of clerical robes. They look like they are a man or a woman of God, and yet they're living in complete disobedience. They're the furthest thing from it. And that, in fact, just as in the case of Balaam, there would be a donkey who could speak the word of God better than they could. That's what Peter's getting at here. Now, he offers some further characterizations, and we're going to wrap up chapter 2. We just went through chapter 2 like this. Verses 17 through 22. He says, These people are springs without water and misdriven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to a vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Now again, this is one of these cases of, you know, if you go to Jude, we get some great clarity here. Between Jude and what Peter's saying here in seven, verse 17 about a spring without water, mist driven by the storm, what Peter's trying to say is, is that these people have nothing to offer. They're like a spring without water. Talking about mist, he's, talking, he's saying it's like they're a cloud that never offers rain, which if you're living in an agricultural society, that's a big deal. And if you keep seeing clouds and it never rains, well, those clouds really don't have anything to offer you. And that's what he's saying here, is these false teachers have nothing to offer you. Complete opposite, in fact, what... What they're trying to do is drag people to where they are, which is a position of being enslaved by sin. Now again, the, the sort of people that Peter's talking about here are people who've claimed that they have believed in Jesus Christ, and so they should be free from sin, and yet they've abandoned that freedom for, to be enslaved by their own desires. And so... Peter characterizes them in that way. He says, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And we have to think here that he's going again back to the teaching of Jesus that he received. In John 8, verses 34 through 36, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Think about that. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. No one gets to dabble in sin and it's just like, okay, I can do this sin and then just leave it when I want to. No. If you are sinning, you are a slave to your sin. Now, as Jesus goes on, he makes clear that he doesn't want us to be these slaves. He says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
You see, God wants to make us part of his family, part of his household. But in order for that to happen, we have to be freed from sin's power. And the wonderful news is, the good news is, alongside the fact that we are forgiven of our sin, is that Jesus can free us from the power of sin. When Jesus frees you, you are going to be free indeed. Even if everyone around you is saying, oh, that guy will never change. You will change if you come to Jesus Christ. Now again, others are enticed by a different idea of freedom. Where to engage in sin is is what it means to be truly free. And I've used this analogy before of a, of a piano where there's a certain freedom in being able to hit any key on that piano that you want. But if you can't play Bach Sonata or something from Beethoven, then you're not free to do that. You're just trapped in your ignorance, just plunking anything in it and everything in it never creates a sweet melody. And that's the condition of, of human beings in this world without Jesus Christ. Sure, we can hit any key, but we cannot make anything of our life. It sounds like chaos. I wanted to share this quote from C.S. Lewis because he speaks of this, of the idea of, of resisting temptation. And some people who have engaged in sinfulness feel like, well, I know the most about sin because I've engaged in it and maybe I've done it to certain varying degrees here and there. But what Lewis says is that true strength, and I think connected to freedom, true freedom is in this ability to leave it completely behind. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus knows what it is to, to fight sin. And he's fought the fight. And he's won. And so because of that, we too can be freed. This is what these false teachers were offered in Jesus Christ. They were offered this sort of freedom, but instead they turned their backs on that, and now they're using Christ as an opportunity for sin, for their selfishness, for their greed. And so they're in a worse position than they were before. And this is why Peter describes it as a dog going back to its vomit. He, he refers to the Proverbs. We find in Proverbs 26.11, says, As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. You see, when we come to Christ, we receive Christ almost as like a sort of medicine. And there's some medicines that can have quite a powerful effect. If you take poison, what do they have to do? They have to pump your stomach out. Now, a shorthand version of that would be just trying to get the person to puke. That's what happens when we come to Christ. We come to Christ, we receive him. He says, I'm going to take all that sin out of you now. You're going to vomit it all up. We're not going to leave that stuff inside you. And yet, these people have turned back to the vomit. 
Imagine how gross that is. <laughs> you, you think about if you threw up, you just had like a meal and that didn't feel good and you went back and like, ah, I kind of want some more of that <laughs> again. We think that sounds gross, but do we think it's just as gross to go back to the sin that Christ has been drawing out of us? That he's been removing from us? We should have that same revulsion towards it. Now, the reason why this is such a terrible position for these false teachers is they basically doubled down on their condemnation. They were sinners, they sinned again, and now they're condemned. And frankly, it seems like a comeback is very unlikely for these people. They've hardened themselves to Christ because they've just used Him. Now, Peter gives us this warning because if we fail to hear it, if we fail to be on the lookout for these teachers, these false teachers, and if we go along with them, our loss will be great. The reality is is that there are false teachers in our world. There are false teachers in this country. There are wolves that are infiltrating churches and leading Christians astray. They are on TV. They are on social media. They're in our local community. What they're offering is a false gospel. There Jesus says, do what feels good. Do what people want you to do. Go along to get along. There Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you wealthy. And you'll never succumb to disease or disability. That if you have just enough faith, you'll never have any physical hardship. Now they preach this false gospel because it benefits them. Society congratulates them for being progressive. People run over each other to give these teachers money just so they can keep on saying what they want to hear. They don't want to hear the Jesus who tells us, in this world you will have trouble. They don't want to hear the Jesus who says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's tough to sell this Jesus. If you're a greedy person, it just doesn't seem like a great business plan. Because he doesn't offer us comfort now, in the immediate, in terms of taking away all of our troubles. He offers a cross. He says, come and join me. But that is not all he offers. Our Messiah is the God of Noah who was rescued from the flood. Our Messiah is the God of Lot who was delivered from the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our Messiah, our Savior, our God is the one who promises us trouble and in the same breath says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So guard yourself and guard the church. When you suffer, when you go through a hard time, you are going to be tempted to return to the vomit of your sin. And there will be teachers aplenty who will invite you to do that. 
It will be tempting to go along, to get along, to embrace a Christianity that our society accepts and celebrates. Don't do it. Don't trade away your inheritance. When you think you're just being reasonable, look for the tentacles of sin that are trying to grasp your heart through cheap excuses. So guard yourself. And guard the church. Don't let Rockland Community Church compromise. Protect your brothers and sisters. Guard your children. Teach each other how to smell out lies. And we must remember this. We know a lie only when we know the truth. We know a lie only when we know the truth. Because this is the case, we must devote ourselves to the study of God's Word. Not just individually, but together in our homes, in small groups, here on Sunday morning, wherever we gather. We read in community to guard ourselves against deception and to clearly hear what God wants us to know. So let us pray that we would be on guard. Dear Father, we thank you for this word of warning from the Apostle Peter, who saw false teachers in his own day and knew that there would be false teachers in our day as well. Father, help us to heed His instruction that we would look to Your Word as our guide. That we would not listen to the words of false teachers that are inspired by their own sinfulness, their own greed, their own selfishness, who want us to go along with them, Father. Father, we pray if it's if it's possible that you would bring these teachers to repentance, that they would turn away from their wickedness, Father, trying to bring others down with them. Especially, Father, we pray that you would protect your people from these teachers, that you would protect this church from false teaching, that you'd make each one of us vigilant and protecting each other, and raising up our young people to know the truth and to smell a lie without us having to hold them by the hand all the time, Father. We pray that you would be glorified, Father, as we are a people who are faithful to your truth. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. 
We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through First and Second Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.